Let's foray into Nevada's wild spaces. This is a half an hour adventure with the Nevada Department of Wildlife. This is Nevada Wild. Here on this Welcome to Nevada Wild, brought to you by the Nevada Department of Wildlife. I'm Ashley Sanchez, joined by Aaron Keller, and today joining us is Jason Williams and Jason Jones. They are both wildlife diversity biologists, and we have them here this week because it's the week of Halloween. It's also Bat Week, and we want to get into bats and other creepy creatures. So thank you both for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Of course. So first off, could you guys, could each of you give a brief, we could start with Jason Williams, just exactly what you do. I said you're both wildlife diversity biologists, but what exactly is your role um, here at Endow? Um, Jason Williams, go ahead. Um, so there's, I think, seven or eight field biologists in diversity and um, most of us work on anything that's not legally hunted which if you think about it is 90 to 95% of all wildlife species in the state. But because we have so much to do, um, we all pretty much specialize in certain things depending on our educational background and I study bats. Got so it. And probably 80% of my time working with bats in Nevada. Okay, and we were saying right before the podcast, you're one of the people that you go into caves and study bats and caves. You have a pretty cool job. So we had, we encourage everyone listening to go back a year ago and listen to, you could find it on our SoundCloud, um, the last podcast we did with Jason, talking about all his work in caves. Jason Jones, um, you are our, you're a reptile specialist. I am. So I'm a herpetologist, meaning a I have a background in studying amphibians and reptiles and uh, for Nevada Department of Wildlife, I'm their lone reptile biologist. So we have about 55 species of reptiles native to the state of Nevada. Um, and so I have the, uh, the task of um, kind of understanding more about their general ecology and some of their population trends throughout the state. And we thought who better than to have on our one of our bat experts and then our reptile guy. So do one of you, I mean, this time of year, we always like to debunk the myths, especially around bats, but we were like, why not do some other animals too? So do either of you want to go first and just talk about some of the myths and misconceptions surrounding some of the species you study? Sure. Um, well, there are... 23 species of bats in Nevada. And, um, you know, they're, maybe I'm biased because I've handled and worked with so many, but to me, they're not scary at all. Um, people's misconceptions about bats are because they're not familiar with them. You know, they don't fly into your hair. They're not blind. Um, they can echolocate, they use sound to navigate. Um, I mean, they have eyesight. Some of them can see very well, but they primarily use sound to navigate. And so um, they're good flyers. They, most of them can fly in and out of, you know, forest communities and vegetative communities really easily without encountering, you know, trees or bushes or anything. Um, 
and yeah, we've been studying them here in Nevada for a long time. We have a project that, that we've been looking at, uh, trying to understand the demographics of a cave that's used by bats here in Eastern Nevada. And over the last five years, we have captured and collected demographic data on over 46,000 bats. And so we're starting to understand um, how population demographics change over the four or so month period that they're at that particular roost. And that's just one species, uh, the Mexican sea-tailed bat, Tadarida brasiliensis. But it gives us an opportunity to understand how they use um, the roost that they, that they use and why, and um, in this particular case, it's real close to Nevada's only commercial wind farm. So it's real important for us to understand those demographics and how they um, relate to bats that are interacting with the wind farm. And um, bats are, could you explain just their importance to our ecosystem and just how important they are? Sure, do you like tequila? Yes, of well, course. We can just leave it right at that. Um, <laughs> bats are the primary pollinator for the agave plant um, that tequila comes from. But they also, you know, more importantly, they're also the primary or secondary, secondary pollinators for, you know, most of the fruits um, in, in the tropics. Um, you know, bananas. Uh, there's, there's a whole list of fruits that they are the primary or secondary pollinators for. They're, they're hugely important um, for agriculture and for, you know, for basically all the fruits and some of the vegetables that we eat. Um, without bats, we would, we'd be in trouble. And they're also, we just did, actually, you sent me some awesome um, thermal video from Eastern Nevada. Um, and <laughs> they're Mexican free-tailed bats. And in that which you keep an eye on our Facebook page because we're going to be posting it tomorrow, but you explained how important they are in controlling insects too. Yes. So there was a paper that came out well over, probably about over a decade ago. And those authors estimated that bats contributed to, um, as far as pest control for about, they contributed about $75 per acre in pesticide use. Um, so they're saving the farmers an estimated $75 an acre uh, on pest control because they're out eating the insects instead. And, you know, most farmers, I mean, a small farmer is farming a thousand acres, so you can do the math. Um, bats save the ag industry a ton of money every year. And therefore, you know, that saves us the, the in the cost of produce at the store. That's huge. And the video you had sent was so cool. It's just like, just, you could just see it's thermal video, but it's just like bats and bats and bats, so many bats in this video. Um, and we'll, by the time this airs, that will be posted on our Facebook. So definitely check that out. Jason Jones, could you talk about some of the poisonous? Oh, <laughs> I uh, that on shame purpose. on you. <laughs> I did that on purpose. Shame on you. <laughs> so, so let me correct that. Misconceptions around the venomous <laughs> animals you deal with. Yeah. So, um, you know, one thing to note about Jason Williams, what he just said, uh, thermal videos, uh, bats are mammals, right? So they're endothermic, meaning they can produce their own heat and they do that metabolically by eating things and converting that to heat energy. Um, reptiles, on the other hand, 
are ectothermic, meaning cold-blooded. And so I think early on in misconception is their blood is cold. Uh, it's just a poor term to describe ectothermy, which means they need to get out on the landscape, find a rock to bask on and increase their body temperature so they can eat things and metabolize those things. Um, and regarding uh, the venomous reptiles, you know, we, we only have six, well, including the Gila monster, we have seven deadly venomous reptiles. We have six deadly venomous snakes. Uh, they're all members of the rattlesnake family, which is a, a pit viper. Um, and they're in, easily distinguished from other snakes uh, because they actually have a rattle. If they're missing a rattle, which uh, like maybe one in a thousand max would, would be missing one due to someone either chopping it off or a, a bird trying to predate on a rattlesnake and, and missing, um, it's going to be a really significant nub tail. So um, yeah, so they're pretty e easily distinguished from other species. Um, unlike, you know, a lot of these other species, I think rattlesnakes are persecuted commonly because of, because of their venom, which is um, evolutionarily been adapted to hunt prey and take down prey. Um, potentially, they believe that it's also used as a defense mechanism against larger mammals, um, which makes sense. It's a defense mechanism. If you corner a rattlesnake, you might get bit. Um, but, you know, their, their first line of defense is to remain cryptic and still. And so they camouflage into the background. Um, and what's really cool about rattlesnakes is commonly from population to population, you'll see really dramatic variation in terms of their color. And that's because they really, you know, have have been evolving, um, being predated upon continuously to ultimately kind of match that um, substrate that they're, they're laying on. But uh, I often hear people say they've seen rattlesnakes jump. Um, that's not true. You know, you can have a rattlesnake lunge, but typically it's about half the length of its body. So if you have a four foot rattlesnake, it's gonna, it's gonna strike about two feet max. Um, the other misnomer is that, you know, I hear people saying that they see nine foot rattlesnakes. Um, that's, that's not true. Um, you know, oftentimes I think just like when fishing, you know, you overestimate the size of the, the catch um, because it's so exciting. And I think even when you're scared of rattlesnakes, you often overestimate their size just due to the fact that it's an exhilarating experience. It makes a better story. And say. it makes a way better story. Yeah. Nine yeah I was, was going to say that never happens in fishing. <laughs> <laughs> Never doesn't happen in fishing is what I've heard. <laughs> well, I want to know the difference between poisonous and venomous. Ah, that's a good question. Oh, yeah. So if, it's really simple. If you eat it and it kills you, poisonous. If it can strike you and it kills you, venomous. So it's all about delivery, right? So um, if you get an apple from a witch this Halloween and that is, you know, <laughs> kills you, that was a poisonous <laughs> apple. Um, if uh, Frankenstein gives you a rattlesnake for Halloween and it kills you, that's venomous. <laughs> Basically, so if it's injecting, I guess, is the word, yeah. or shooting venom into you, that would be venomous, where poisonous is, like you said, I guess when you bite into it. <laughs> yeah, like poison dart frogs, poison. right? Like that's a, that's a one that like if you lick them or if you, you know, try to eat it, it's going to kill you. But um, I'm not going to lick them. Don't lick them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so right, just like, just like, I was going to say, just like poisonous plants. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Eat a poisonous plant. It's yep. a poisonous plant. And one thing Ashley brought up, um, you know, they are injecting, they are injecting venom into you. And um, it's very similar to a hypodermic needle. So 
rattlesnakes have an actual muscle surrounding their venom gland in the roof of their mouth. And that those teeth actually fold in. And so when they open their mouth, they fold out, they're kind of hinged. And that allows the snake to um, adequately envenomate their prey or, you know, a potential predator. Um, but those teeth are hollow. And so they're actually able to deliver just like a needle, the venom into whatever, whatever they want. Um, there's a huge, there's kind of a common misnomer that's, I think, readily um, pushed around that uh, small rattlesnakes are more deadly than large rattlesnakes. And that simply isn't true. A baby rattlesnake can in fact control its venom. Um, so they're born with those muscles and, you know, just like any other animal, they, they know how to use those muscles. Um, but it's likely that those baby rattlesnakes actually are seeking different prey. So they're going to consume, say, small lizards or other things, which may be a different cocktail. And that's how I like to think of venom. It's like a, it's a cocktail, right? So a Long Island in Las Vegas might be a, Long Island, a different Long Island in uh, Salt Lake City. Um, so each population is going to vary in terms of what um, what what's in that cocktail, and that's based on prey largely. So baby rattlesnakes eat different things than adults, but point being in the take-home message is large rattlesnakes deliver a high volume of venom and therefore are more dangerous. Okay, very cool. I hate to do this because we're really getting into it, but um, it is time to take a quick break. We will be right back. You are listening to Nevada Wild. If you enjoy listening to our podcast, leave us a review on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information on hunting, fishing, boating, and all things wildlife, go to endow.org. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Nevada Wild. Today we are talking about bats, snakes, and just the different creepy crawlers out there in Nevada and debunking some of the myths around them. We have wildlife diversity biologist Jason Williams and Jason Jones joining us today. And I felt like a lot of our conversation during the break was pretty interesting. Jason Williams, you had a good question for Jason Jones during the break, um, because right before it, we had been talking about the difference between poison and venom. So do you want to ask your question again? Sure. Um, I was wondering if when a snake injects venom, or a reptile injects venom in its prey, and then eats that prey, does that venom affect the reptile at all? Right. So, um, <clears throat> Well, so no, um, and the long answer is, that's the short answer. Um, the long answer is obviously they have antibodies to their own venom. So two snakes can actually be in combat and bite each other if they're the same species and presumably have no, or very little ill effects. Um, however, if like a cobra and say like a Great Basin rattlesnake met, that might be a very different story. Um, Cause again, different cocktails. Um, but what I was thinking about uh, after the break was, um, you know, it's interesting, they've done experiments illustrating that rattlesnakes, when they envenomate prey, can actually target their own prey. So they've done these experiments where they kill a mouse and drag it on uh, these little test trial runs, and they'll kill one with venom and then put it away, and the snake will follow the venom trail. And then if they kill it with the snake's own species venom, it'll follow that one more specifically. And then if they 
use that snake's like personal venom, it'll actually follow that. So snakes have a really acute sense of smell using that forked tongue. They can pick up chemical cues on the, on the landscape. And so they can actually, um, once they do kill prey, not only are those enzymes and peptides and that venom working to like either, you know, break down muscle and tissue, which would be like cyto or uh, um, what is the other type of venom? Cytotoxin, or it'd be like a neurotoxin, which would be like attacking the respiratory system or circulatory system. Um, but then they can actually like follow that prey all the way through the forest and find out exactly where it is. Oh, that's really cool. Yep. Yeah. Very interesting stuff. Because they're pretty wimpy. I mean, they don't want to wrestle prey like a yeah. constrictor. They want to hit the target. They sit and wait under a bush. Something passes by, and they usually sit on mouse trails. So people who like to feed birds in their backyard, um, that's a great way to get mice in your backyard. And that's subsequently a decent way to get snakes visiting your backyard. That's why we always say when people are like, how do I make sure I'm not making attracting snakes to my yard it's making sure you're not attracting their prey <laughs> yep. a lot of that anything their prey could hide under or attracts them because they want to eat it um doesn't it take a lot of energy too for snakes when they use their venom oh yeah the words yep. that probably would make it to where they don't want to they don't want to have to find something else they would want to track down that yeah yeah, it takes time to actually uh, engineer your venom, right? To, yeah. to replenish that supply. So that's a re resource they don't want to just use willy-nilly, so to speak. Exactly. And so these well, snakes, they're, they're great at keeping the, the, the rodents in check too. I, for example, I got a call a number of years ago um, from a local guy who was raising some kind of small dog, I forget, and... Uh, and he didn't like rattlesnakes around at all. He tried to kill everyone he could find, but he was having problems with uh, gophers. And so I went out and we hadn't talked about the snakes at all, but I went out and, and looked at his place and sure enough, he had a huge gopher problem. And I said, well, Joe, I, snakes eat gophers. Do you got any snakes around here? He says, no, I kill everyone I find. And I, I said, well, Joe, that's why you have a huge gopher problem. <laughs> yep. They go hand in hand. Good point. They do. <laughs> Aaron, were you going to say something? Um, yeah, I was going to, like, so I get out and I hike quite a bit. And one rumor that I've heard is that um, our rattlesnakes, that they rattle, is their rattle, whether they rattle or not, is genetically passed on. So there's some that don't rattle, or is that well, is it just because they're cold or? That's another great like myth. I mean, obviously each snake has its own personality, right? Um, so they all make choices on whether to get out in the morning and get up early or get up late, right? Um, and one thing, you know, there has been some research done in South Dakota, I believe in the Black Hills, um, where they did see some atrophied tail muscles and potentially that's tied to persecution. So like Jason Williams just noted, when you go out and you kill rattlesnakes and they're rattling, what you're actually doing is you're encouraging rattlesnakes to keep quiet and don't warn you of their presence to uh, produce, reproduce and continue that kind of like um, that kind of attitude or behavior. Um, rattlesnakes are awesome in terms of like you have a venomous reptile to choose from, you know, a puff outer or like an inland taipan or these things that don't rattle and are way more toxic. Um, 
we're pretty lucky. These things shake a tail that's super loud and they usually do that to warn you that you're too close. That's a good point. A lot of people, the, I mean, it's supposed to do this, but they, the rattle freaks them out and it almost makes it like the snakes are more creepy because of that rattle, but really it's warning you not to yeah, get closer. So. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's like, thanks for letting me know you don't we want should... me to come closer. Yep, when you see those rattlesnakes, tell them thanks. Yeah. <laughs> At a safe what? distance. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, one thing that when we were getting ready to do this podcast, um, you know, we were like, man, who, how can we do something that around Halloween or Creepy Crawly or anything like that? And both your guys' names came up because you guys love, you, not because you guys are, <laughs> that you guys love these like weird animals and, and these, these things that not a lot of people like find interesting or they don't. So you guys have always wanted to do this You're, since you were little kids or what? I have. Uh, my parents still have a, a thing I made when I was in first grade that said I wanted to be a biologist when I grew up. And, you know, again, I don't think bats are scary. I've been working with them for, I don't know, 30 years and they've never flown in my hair or never had any problems. I feel like yeah. there's, a, there's a joke there. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> The audience doesn't know I'm bald. But. <laughs> <laughs> That's why he's bald. Yeah. Uh, Jason Jones, what about you? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think back to my childhood and my grandmother grew up on the, um, the foothills of the Grand Tetons um, outside of Wyoming and Idaho. And uh, I remember going out with her. She painted a lot landscapes and she would capture garter snakes and gopher snakes happily and show them to me and that just blew my mind so just like jason williams said from an early age i was really fond of reptiles and amphibians and my parents can attest that i probably kept too many of them in their basement but um as a result it definitely piqued my interest and and uh encouraged me to become a biologist yeah it definitely comes through when we talk to you guys that you guys love your jobs you love going out in the field and and uh, yeah, it's definitely apparent for me. I know you guys are good ones to bring on for this because it's fun just to hear all about all the species you deal with and exactly what you do out there. You should so. come out for a day with us in the field. I know, it's been a while I was thinking since I've been in the field. Uh, so um, is there any other things that you feel, I don't know, have a bad, some misconceptions around them that you want to address while we're here right now? Well, during the break, Aaron, you asked about bat houses. Um, oh yeah, that's a good question. Bat boxes, we have been posting all week for bat week and that's one of the questions that keeps coming up is, um, how can I get a bat box? And I personally don't even know how to answer that because I don't know exactly what they are. So if you could explain that, that'd be good for some people. Sure. Well, you know, none of us want animals living in our houses. You know, you don't want mice running around your house and you don't want bats in your house either. Um, you know, any animal pees and poops um, and gives off, delivers offspring. And, you know, it's, they're not, you don't want animals living in, in the walls of your houses, but, and bat boxes are a great way to have bats on your property, but not living in your house. And you put them 
on the side of your house or on a pole um, or on the side of your garage. Um, and there's specific designs you can find online pretty easily. Maybe we can throw a link up on one of our web pages. And uh, the thing with bat boxes is you, you have to move them around a little bit to figure out exactly what kind of sun exposure the bats are gonna prefer before they start to really use it. And so you might move, try like a new place each year until you figure it out after you know two or three years. Um, I just got one as a gift from a friend and we're gonna throw it up on a pole, you know, away from the house. Um, because you, again, you don't want them living in your house. They'll, they'll create a mess and you'll have to get it fixed. But having them out um, in a bat box or, or nearby, they're just gonna contribute to pest control and they're quite fun to watch fly out at night. Exactly. Um, so just basically somewhere in your yard, as you said, away from your home, so that they don't come in, but then you could actually see them and they help you with all the pests. Yes. Um, can you send me that link? Cause I'll post that with the caption to this. Sure. Cool. Hey, Jay, a follow-up question on that. Um, is, uh, is there a difference in terms of like the Mojave Desert since we have such temperature extremes compared to say like Ely or Elko or Reno where you have, you know, more of a temperate climate? Um, are bat boxes more effective in one of those ecosystems versus the other? So that's a good question. So if you're gonna put them on the side of a house where they're only getting sun part of the day, like where I live in Ely, I would, I would try it on the south side of the house so they're getting the most sun exposure. Um, down in, for example, Vegas where it's a lot warmer and totally different climate. Um, you know, you might try the east or southeast side of the house first, so they get that morning and and late morning sun. But then when it gets blazing hot around two or three p.m., uh, they're not in direct sunlight. Um, but again, you just you've got to try it, and if they don't take to it the first year or two, don't be discouraged. It takes them a year or more to find it to begin with, and then. Um, but if they don't, after a couple of years, try moving it to a different side of the house. But they're going to want some ex sun exposure. You're, you're never going to want to put it on the north side of the house. Good information. And we are, that takes us right to the end, unless there's anything else either of you want to add. No, I'm good. Okay. Well, thank you both. That was fun. I liked hearing about, well, I always, we always like talking about bats, but then that, uh, it was fun hearing the difference because so many people say poison <laughs> the difference between poison and venom so now we know now we all know <laughs> thank you both for being here and thank you everyone for listening that does it for this week's nevada wild Join us again next week for our next adventure, Nevada Wild. It's a production of the Nevada Department of Wildlife.